Good morning, Grace Place Church family. The day after Christmas, and the building is empty because it's an online service only today. Uh, apologize if any of you did not get the word in advance, but we're glad you're able to join us online, and we believe that God has something special for you today through His word. We're going to talk about believe as a result of all that has been accomplished for us, uh, and we're going to look at a parable that Jesus taught in, in Luke chapter 20. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, I would like you to turn there, Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 9. In a moment, we're going to go into that. And I'm going to invite you to do what we do when we're gathered together here. Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I hope you had a wonderful time together with your family, Christmas and celebration. The real reason for the season. We have so much to celebrate. And all month long, we have been rediscovering the joy of Christmas, rediscovering the love of Christmas, rediscovering the peace, and rediscovering uh, the hope that we have in Christ. And so we're so grateful for all that God has accomplished for each one of us, and grateful that you're able to join us today with your family. Please stand for the reading of God's Word as we look in Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 9. He, that is Jesus, went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to his tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant but that servant, that one also, they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill these tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priest looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. And if you'd like to turn with me a few pages over to John chapter 1, I want to read a, a passage starting at verse 10, actually a couple of verses there. He, that is Jesus, was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He became, or he came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. Yet to all who receive him, 
to those who believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of the, uh, of the husband's will, but born of God. And may I remind you again, as we're reading through this, that John tells us uh, towards the end of his gospel in, in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says this, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 31, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we're asking that these next few moments, that your very presence would be in the room, Lord, to convict, to touch us, to deal with our hearts in any way where we may have lived as this parable teaches we have in, at one time or another in our life. If we are still there, that we might course correct and open to the wonderful gift that you bring to us through the Holy Spirit, the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that in your name. Amen. Amen. The reason the Gospels have been given to us is not so that we might become students of history, but it is in order that we might become converts, that we might become converted uh, by becoming familiar with what God has accomplished on our behalf and by becoming familiar with God himself through the Holy Spirit. God has invited us to a personal relationship. First of all, I'd like to, for us to note as we read through these passages that there is one clear thing that we should take away from each of these passages, and that is that God has graciously taken the initiative towards having a relationship with us in sending His Son. What we have celebrated in Christmas yesterday is the fulfillment of God's gracious invitation to all mankind to a personal relationship with Him. God sending His very own Son. We are all familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, I think Jake uh, alluded to this just last weekend when we were gathered together. Uh, John 3, 16 may be one of the verses that you and I first memorized when we were trying to commit the Bible uh, scriptures to memory, important ones that we wanted to take with us. And it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And encapsulated in that memorable verse is the fact that God has graciously taken the initiative, that he is both light and life that has come, and he's opened this to all, the opportunity for salvation. It's not a closed invitation, but an open invitation. He came to dwell among mankind. He clothed himself in flesh, and he came for all. And it is, in fact, that which uh, the response of people in light of this that, that really is quite surprising as we look at, at what God has accomplished on our behalf. The initiative that God has taken uh, towards us leads to a surprising kind of response in the world around us. God has come out of eternity and into time in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order that men and women that are living in darkness might be introduced to the light of life. And what has been the response? Well, the response has been really 
uh, quite surprising of mankind. That not only has man not recognized that light, but in many respects that light has become uh, not only unrecognized, but unwelcomed and unwanted. And as we look at this passage um, in the light, in the, in the parable that we opened up with, in the light of, of what the truths are for us out of this scripture passage, we need to start first with the response of man versus God's initiative in reaching out in love towards us. And it was in this story the same, unrecognized by his own world. I want to draw our attention to three factors that we are told plainly in that text that we read. And you can see them for yourself. First of all, that Jesus was in the world. And although he was the creator of the world in which he found himself, the world did not recognize him. He moved among the streets, he walked among the people and, and had discourse and, and uh, they saw him even do miracles and things that were going on. And by and large, in, in large uh, groups of people, he remained unrecognized as the Messiah, as the one who was sent by God, who came, God clothed in flesh, to transform and to change lives. Some would recognize him as a teacher, some as a prophet, but many would, who were even followers for a long season did not recognize him as the Messiah that they had hoped for. Now, by the time that Paul writes this, uh, his great treatise in the book of Romans, and uh, he writes these words, Since the creation of the world, he says, God's visible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made, so that men are without excuse. What is Paul saying there? That God has always made it easy to know he is among us. We look at the world, we look at the universe, we see the vast creation. We know that, that there is uh, both an, a, a cause and effect. We, we recognize that because of what we see, the grandeur of what we see, that there has to be one who has created this for us, that has given us the very breath of life. In other words, as a result of God's common grace, Paul's saying there's enough in the world of that, that common grace of God and, and miraculous works of God that the world could, could at least become theist, at a minimum. Not atheist, but theist, those who believe there is a God. They might not know him personally, but they can see his handiwork. They can know that he is among them. And he says, uh, Paul goes on to say in that passage, but although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor did they give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise and actually became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Those first century words fit our day today in the 21st century so perfectly. In so many ways, we are doing the same things that they did then in being those who do not recognize the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah walking among us. But to this day, he walks the streets of our cities, our towns, our villages, and is unrecognized. 
You might say to me, Pastor, how is it? Like I've read in, in the New Testament about Jesus walking among the people, doing miracles, turning the water into wine, opening blind eyes, how multitudes of people came to hear him teach. How is it that now he is walking among us? He, he left, he departed, and, and he left the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's not, how is he walking among us? I would say to you that New Testament scripture tells us that he walks among us through his body, the body of Christ, the living church, not people who just attend church, but he walks among us, the body, uh, as, as the body of Christ, those who belong to him and are living out uh, his commands and are loving and doing the ministry that he has called us to. He was unrecognized in uh, his time as he came among the people, but he was also unwelcomed by his people. The second thing that we're told in the text is, is it in, in that very next verse, not only did they, he not, was he not recognized in the world, which is still true, but he was unwelcomed by his own. And the way that it's translated here, he says he came to that which was his own. We could actually translate it, he came to his own home. It'd be a terrible thing if you and I came home and our children, our, our, our wives, our spouses did not recognize us, did not welcome us. And this was the story of Jesus, unrecognized, unwelcomed. He came to his own, to his own people. They didn't receive him. That actually is historically accurate also of the relationship with his own brothers and sisters. And certainly it is true of the relationship to his own people. And he comes at the fulfillment of all the prophecies that have been given to, to the, the children of Abraham. And throughout all of these years, they have learned and heard about the coming of the Messiah. They have supposedly been looking for him. And he comes and walks among them and is unrecognized and unwelcomed. And they have had every opportunity to hear everything that God has said through the prophets. They have been waiting for the Messiah. They, they have been looking for the one to come. And he comes to his own home. And he comes to his own people. And his own people do not welcome him. And that's why I read the parable out of Luke chapter 20 as we opened up. It's, it's a striking parable as we look at it in the light of these other passages. And so he tells the story of the tenants. He is talking about a, a, a vineyard that was let out to tenants who would care for that vineyard by the property owner. And the Jews would have instantly understood that they knew this, this, this vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. That that vineyard was a description of the people of Israel. The vineyard was a, describing them. They would have instantly understood and connected the dots on that, more so maybe than you and I when we first read that passage. So familiar were they with the uh, Isaiah chapter 5 that they knew God was talking about uh, them, the beloved that came among the vineyard. And the first thing he does is fence it in, set boundaries for it. 
And he begins to remove the hardships, the rocks, the things that would prevent them from growing and becoming all that they should be. And so the people immediately connect the dots as, this this is about us. This parable, he's talking about us. And as he begins to work his way through the parable, they begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together. The vineyard has been planted by someone. And Jesus is referring to God himself. Again, connecting the dots from Isaiah chapter 5, they would have seen God in the vineyard, lovingly caring for that vineyard, who planted that vineyard, started the work there, provided a place for all that resides in that vineyard. And the one who planted the vineyard has sent now to his servants. Now, who are his servants in this parable? The servants are his prophets. As we stated a moment ago, Israel had heard through their prophets over and over again about the coming of the Messiah. They had been telling that he would come, prophesying over and over again that the people should look for him and even how he would come. Isaiah saying he would be the suffering servant. He wouldn't be the one who would come in might and dominion and power at this time. That he would come among them as, as, as a humble servant, as a suffering servant. And the prophets would have come down through the years speaking to the people saying, turn from this and turn from that, turn away from your sins and turn to God, prepare for the Messiah who is coming. But the tenants, they just beat the prophets up. They imprisoned them, stoned them, silenced them in any way they could. And who are these tenants? Well, the tenants are first and foremost in this parable, the leaders. And you see at the end of that story, they recognized that Jesus was talking about them. But the tenants are actually, in one express way, are also the people who are listening to him tell this parable. They're the ones who have been given stewardship over what happens around them. Stewardship of their family. Stewardship of of the property and place in which they live. Stewardship over the earth, stewardship over uh, their own lives and their time and their calendar. And the chief preachers and teachers of the law who were actually responsible for telling this parable, uh, you know, because they were asking the question beginning in verse 2 earlier uh, in that that chapter and that text concerning the authority of Jesus. Yes, they wanted to know by what authority Jesus was operating. He had sent his prophets to tell, foretell of his coming. They knew he was coming. He had sent miraculous signs and wonders. Likely there were those there who had heard the story of the shepherds seeing the angels in heaven proclaiming, go and see this one who has come, king of kings. And we're here to ask you, they said, Jesus, about your authority. It's amazing, isn't it? quite presumptuous on the part of these people. That they come to the Lord of glory. They come to the King of the universe. And they ask Him to justify His existence and to explain to them what He is doing. But underlying their question, as uh, Luke tells us, just two verses up at the end of chapter 19, 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were doing what? What were they doing? They were trying to kill Jesus. They were trying to extinguish the message as they had with the prophets previously, uh, centuries before, trying to, to stamp out the voice of God to his people. They were waiting for the opportunity where they could finally silence the voice and steal away this audience for their own works so that they might be their own God and they might have dominion over and that others might be serving their purposes and their missions and their will. And Jesus says, let me tell you a parable. <laughs> let me tell you about the prophets. Let me tell you about the tenants. Let me tell you, they're a lot like you. And as we read through the parable in the 21st century, we see ourselves in the story as well. How do we see ourselves? By our very nature, we don't want to receive the Son whom God has sent. By our very nature, we're not predisposed to recognize and attribute God, uh, the glory to God. And by our very nature, we live in darkness and we quite like darkness, as Paul had said. It actually suits us not to recognize the light. John later on uh, in his chapter, in verse 3, this is his verdict. This is what he says. Light was come into the world. And then he goes on to say, but the fact is men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Jesus puts his finger on the issue that is before them, his own people, pointing out to them that they had multiple opportunities to turn their life around, that God has revealed himself over and over again, beginning with this very creation that calls out for man to have a relationship with him, but culminating in the sending of his own son, who they had crucified. That is why the Bible always speaks in the now. And it's saying to us, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for us to believe that God is, that God has a plan for you, that he loves you and he cares about you. In this parable, Jesus told their, uh, their ultimate resolve is that they will kill him, the leaders, of that time, let's kill his son and we'll inherit then what belongs to him. We'll get what we want if we kill the son. And there came this warning out of the parable that we read that brings us to the third and final aspect of these verses. First of all, you'll notice that he was unrecognized by his own world. He was unwelcomed by his own people. And therefore the warning comes. The warning is that you shouldn't presume. This is to Israel out of this parable. You shouldn't presume that because of your ethnic background, you're in because you're not. In other words, he's saying to them, you shouldn't presume that because you're Jewish and the Messiah is coming to the Jews, that you're in. There's something that needed to happen for them then, like there's something that needs to happen in our hearts and lives for us now. 
We need to recognize him. We need to welcome him. And we need to make him the Lord and the leader of our life. There's a wonderful encouragement for each of us in Jesus' telling of this parable and the summation that I just read a moment ago, that the ethnicity is not enough. God was welcoming the Gentile nations, people of all the world, of every color, of every tribe, of every ethnicity. God invites to come and have a personal relationship with the God who created them, formed them, loves them. The New Testament warns us that we are not God's children by nature. We are, in fact, the children of God's wrath. We have rejected the cornerstone. That was the part of the, the, the text that we read earlier when Jesus was asking them, yeah, if this, if this should never be, if this story that I'm telling you, this parable, you don't like the way it, it is, why is it that it was prophesied that it would happen like this, that there is a chief cornerstone that would be rejected? And I would have you to understand that every, everyone who rises up against this will be crushed. This is the stone the builder has made, the foundation stone of the universe. The cornerstone. Our sins block us from recognizing and welcoming God and all, uh, you know, the God of all creation. It, it prevents us. It keeps us back. And Jesus said we must be born again. We're not automatic inheritors of this because our family went to church and, and because we picked up the Bible and because we went to Sunday school and, and because we have heard the stories of the Bible and because we somehow believe that there is a God, we are only in, in line for being members of God's family when we surrender lordship of our lives to him. And we ask him to be the Lord and the leader of our lives. And Jesus said that happens when you're born again. John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus confused, saying, you know, you can only be born once. You know, I was born and I can't go back into my mother's womb. And Jesus said, that's right. You were born of the water, but you must be born of the spirit. Your spirit, man, is dead right now in your trespasses and sins, in your rejecting of God and recognizing, uh, your refusal to recognize him, your refusal to welcome him. And now, in order to have life, you must welcome a second birth in your life, opening yourself up, believing in God, welcoming him in to be Lord and leader of your life. And this is a divine transaction as a result of a divine initiative let us never look at it as if we are on a, a spiritual journey looking for God and, and he's hiding out somewhere. But we must recognize, as Jesus was teaching them, that the initiative was taken by God, that there was a vineyard he loved, there was a world he loved, and he sent his son to that world. And the world said, let's crucify him, let's kill him, because then we will have what belongs to him. And he raised from the dead on the third day, conquered and overcame. And now we are all in line for salvation if we surrender our lives to him, if we welcome and open our lives to him. But we're all in line to be eternally lost and separated from God if we reject him. 
Our salvation began not with our surrendered, uh, sur- you know, surrendering to him, but when God breathed the breath of life into our lungs, he initiated love, and he alone is the initiator of that relationship with you and I. Our surrender is just recognizing what God has already began. What he's already started, what, what has already begun for you and I, is we're opening to it and inviting him to come into our hearts and lives. This is a Sunday before we began a brand new year. And we roll out what we believe God is saying to us for this year as a church. But what I want to begin with uh, today is I want to invite you to invite him in, in all sincerity to be Lord and leader of your life. This is a moment that is sacred between you and God. We're not together as a church family and no one past your living room recognizes or knows what may be accomplished in, in your life right now. It is God speaking personally to you and saying, I took the initiative, I came. You're a tenant here. This is not your world. This is not your property. The breath you're breathing does not belong to you. I gave it to you. What will you do as a result of what I've initiated? What will you do with my son that I sent to die for you? And in this moment, we have an opportunity to make him Lord and leader of our life. And what I want to invite you to do is to pray with me this prayer as we get ready to close. The worship team is coming uh, to lead us out in a song. Repeat after me, Lord Jesus, I invite you to be Lord and leader of my life. I recognize you initiated the relationship. I welcome you to be Lord in my life. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died for me, and I believe you rose again. Be Lord and leader of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We rejoice with you who have said that in all sincerity. A beautiful work begins today, this moment in you. It's instantaneous as you invite him to be Lord and leader of your life. And we want to support you and help you in your walk, in your growth and development. And we want to encourage you to be faithful to coming to church and, and uh, listening to the word of God, reading God's word, praying together with God's family so we can grow together and become all that God has intended. We are living in his vineyard. He loves us so much. He sent prophets to tell, preachers to preach, teachers to teach, and his own son to die for you. He loves you. God bless you.